I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 18. As Chris suggested, we are studying the parables of our Lord. And this morning we come to the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, found only in Luke's Gospel. Jesus, in his parables, focuses the searchlight of truth upon our hearts. Or to change the illustration, to borrow from James, his parables are like a mirror that expose us to ourselves. And such is the effect of this parable that I have chosen for our consideration this morning. Luke introduces us to his target audience. Our Lord addressed this parable, we should see, brothers and sisters, not only to the self-righteous, those who think they're right before God because of who they are or what they have done, but he also directs this parable to his disciples. Christ wants each one of us to face ourselves in this parable, and therefore we need to hear it as if it was spoken to us because indeed it was. That is why Luke included this parable in his gospel. As we're going to see that Jesus describes and he contrasts two kinds of worshipers and then concludes with God's assessment of and response to the prayers of each man. The question that meets us is this, even before we take up this parable and read it. How do we approach God, especially in public worship? Do we come to Him broken and humble as sinners, sensing their deep need of His mercy that's offered to us in Jesus Christ? Or do we show God by our spiritual smugness that we think we're all right, that we don't need His mercy offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there show that we are in our sin and under His condemnation. You see, we are really one person or the other in this parable. And the question we'll need to ask each of ourselves honestly is, which one are we? Look, if you would then, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. May the Lord add his own blessing to the reading and to the consideration of his word this morning. Now, as we come to this parable of the Pharisee and the publican, we're going to look at a number of points of exposition, of explanation, and then we're going to consider a few words of practical application. We're going to consider the parable's audience, identified the parable's actors, introduced the parable's lesson, illustrated, and finally the parable's conclusion, individualized. Notice, first of all, the parable's audience identified. The parable's audience identified. Verse 9, And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now notice here that Jesus is pointing out two very closely connected sins, spiritual Siamese twins joined at the heart, we might say. Both are children of their evil mother, pride. First, pride makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. How common it is for us to look upon ourselves as being very dignified and to despise other people. Fact is, pride is blinding, and because of this, pride prevents us from seeing our own sins while it magnifies the failings of others. Consequently, we condemn others while we give ourselves a pass or even a pat on the back. You see, we are all masters of self-congratulation. But when we stand on our own merits, we stand on slippery ground. The Bible says that pride comes before what? Comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Our Lord teaches that if our hearts are not bowed in contrition, they will be lifted up in condemnation. No sin so stinks in the nostrils of God than self-righteousness. What men admire, God abominates. We read Jesus' words in another place, Luke 16 and verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Proud worship is especially hateful to God. On the contrary, nothing is more pleasing to the Lord than we come to Him in a spirit of lowliness, with a heart bowed in brokenness over our sin, a heart that pleads for mercy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
It is brokenness over our sin, not inflated views of our own supposed goodness that catches God's eye, that promises his presence and secures his blessings. We have the Lord's word on this in a number of places. I choose but two. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, God says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Humble, lowly before God, contrite of spirit, not high and proud and lifted up and arrogant, thinking that we're really something when God says we're absolutely nothing. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He who sits upon the throne of the universe, who is matchless in his splendor, he also dwells with the lowly of heart, those who think nothing of themselves. And when they do think of themselves, they think I'm worthy only of judgment and not of mercy or any good thing that should fall from the table of God. So those are the two kindred vices identified in the audience that Jesus is speaking to. He told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Notice, secondly, the parable's actors introduced. Notice the two different men in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. Nourishing food, we say, sticks to our ribs. And similarly, nourishing doctrine sticks to our hearts. Our Lord would nourish our hearts with a lesson on true prayer. He highlights two different approaches to God by two very different men in their prayers in, we would say, in church, there in the temple. Each one of us comes to church with an attitude. An attitude toward ourselves, an attitude toward others, an attitude toward God. Jesus teaches that we don't leave this attitude at the door when we enter the sanctuary. In fact, we carry this attitude with us at all times, but it is especially on display in our worship, even if it is only observed by the Lord. God sees our hearts. He knows our thoughts afar off. And in the hand of the Holy Spirit, his word searches our hearts, judges our thoughts, and even the very intentions of our thoughts in our hearts. He sees all, in other words. We know this from the teaching of Scripture. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrows. It gets right down to the very bottom of our being, the writer is saying, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, when we come into this place, we can't hide from God. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So this is a place where we need to get honest with ourselves and honest with God. In other words, God can't help us until we are honest. And what is repentance? Repentance is the first honest thought and deed we ever do because we begin to think rightly about our sin, rightly about God, rightly about others, rightly about the world in which we live. So as we consider the parables actors introduced, notice first of all, the proud prayer. Jesus presents him as a Pharisee. So note the first actor in our Lord's parable. <clears throat> and I suggest to you that Jesus might have caught his audience quite by surprise in choosing the Pharisee as his negative example. Pharisees, they were the theological conservatives of their day. They believed their Bibles cover to cover. They believed everything from Genesis through Malachi. They believed the word of God. And so zealous were they for God and his law that they, they actually added their many regulations that went beyond the teaching of, of Scripture. They tried to set the bar, the bar even higher for acceptable behavior before God than what the Bible does. They were also renowned for their public display of sanctity, especially in prayer. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus warns his disciples against imitating the Pharisees in their showy prayers in public. Jesus said to them, when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. How we can practice our religion to be raised in the esteem of others rather than to seek the face and approval of God through Jesus Christ. You see, it is just such a hypocritical prayer that Jesus sets before us. In this parable, the Pharisee represents all worshipers who come before God in prayer with an attitude of self-congratulation and a dismissive attitude of condemnation toward other people. Brother, if, if we don't think that that is in our churches and in our hearts, we don't know ourselves as we ought. We're reminded of a lesson. Not all worship praised by men is approved by God. That which is highly esteemed among men, remember, is detestable in the sight of God. So that's the proud prayer, the Pharisee. 
Notice the contrast, the penitent prayer, the publican. Consider Jesus' second actor here in his parable. And I suggest as well that this tax gatherer is just as unlikely to be received as a positive example by Jesus' audience. Despised tax gatherers, you see, were at the far other end of the social spectrum from the Pharisees. No one is surprised that Jesus presents a Pharisee as praying in the temple, but a publican? This man come in off the streets? A wretched reprobate in the eyes of the religious establishment of Jesus' day? Jesus here surely would have perked up their ears when he presents this unlikely public prayer as the model worshiper. No doubt any, anybody that was drifting away and daydreaming, they snapped to attention to listen to what Jesus had to say. We're reminded of a lesson that a worshiper's social and religious Status and standing means nothing to God since he looks at the heart. God doesn't look at the outward man. He looks at the inward man. God sees not as man sees. Did he, remember when he told Samuel he's looking, looking for a man after his own heart? He's about ready to go visit Jesse and look at all of his sons because one of them was going to be the king. And he sees Eliab standing there, tall man. Probably not too much shorter than Saul. Davis think, or Samuel thinks, surely this is the man? And he goes all the way through the family. Do you have another son? Yeah, he's just the youngest. He's out tending sheep. Yeah, do you want me to go get him? God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We may be easily mistaken in our assessment of others because we can't see their hearts, but God can. So we've seen the parable's audience, the actors. Notice now the parable's lessons illustrated in verses 11 through 13. Consider the two diverse prayers. Notice the proud prayer of the Pharisee. Verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Listening to this Pharisee, you would think that he was applying for a job as he trots out his resume of righteousness before the Lord. Maybe he thought he was going to impress God and anybody else who happened to be listening. The picture Jesus sketches of this prayer is grotesque. I believe it's exaggerated for emphasis. Oh, there might have been a man who actually went in and prayed this way. But brethren, we need not be this gross to be this guilty. 
We're careful, you see, not to draw such attention to ourselves and what we may think in our hearts about ourselves and others and God. We're we're careful to edit before it leaves our lips. But God hears what goes on here, not just what happens here. And notice, too, that this man asks God for nothing. Why? Because he thinks he has everything. He needs nothing. He breathes the spirit of the Laodiceans. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You see, if he wants anything at all, he wants recognition. Like Absalom, he erects a monument to commemorate his name and to draw attention to himself there in the Pharisee, by the way he prays, before the publican, by the way he prays. Jesus' portrait of the Pharisee gives us a few hints about his true character and why God rejected his prayer. Notice first his posture in prayer. It was the orthodox stance of a praying Jew. They stood to pray. And this is not remarkable until we see its contrast in the posture of the publican. Notice second, his position in prayer in contrast with that of the publican. He likely stood by himself, but close to the wall that separates the public area in the temple from the inner sanctuary. He wanted to be as close to God as he could be. So he stands by himself, away from others, especially away from this despised publican. Notice, thirdly, his presentation in prayer. Jesus says he was praying thus to himself. I don't know exactly what Jesus means here, but he seems to have been praying not to God, but to himself, relating a soliloquy in the ears of God about his greatness and his goodness and the reason his prayer should be received by God. He was proudly preening his feathers before God and before the publican and before anyone else that would listen. Notice fourth, his priorities in prayer. Consider two things we mentioned earlier. First of all, negatively, his, his proud comparison with others. If he's going to gain God's ear, he's he's got to put others down. He does this in two ways. He does this negatively. I thank thee that I am not like other people. And he contrasts himself with certain of those people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers. And just taking him at his word, at least outwardly speaking, he may have been a very moral man. Indeed, many people rest on their morality to think that they have God's approval. They have this merit mentality. I am a good person. I do good things. And therefore, God should accept me. 
But notice specifically his special contrast, or even like this, this tax gatherer, he singles out a man not far away from him for special consideration and contrast. You see, he contrasts himself favorably with this publican. He wants God to know that he's a good man and this is a very bad man. They're both in the temple. Who should he listen to? So that's negatively his proud comparison. Notice positively his proud, his pr- proud promotion of himself. On the other hand, let me tell you, Lord, I fast twice a week. Under the law, there was only one required fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Jews added other days of fasting. He probably fasted on Monday and Thursday, like other religious men of his day. And he's really speaking like a proud Romanist. This is super arrogation. God, you require this, and I do more than that. Certainly, I should be accepted. I pay tithes of all that I get, all the vegetables and all the herbs. I take one part per ten and give it to you. That wasn't bad to do, but he prided himself in it, you see. He prided himself that he performed it above the regulations of the law of Moses. Now, before moving on, it would only be fair to recognize some things that would be commendable in his prayer if they had been offered in the right spirit. Notice the expression of thankfulness to God in his prayer. I thank you. Brethren, gratitude lies close to the heart of true worship. It is always right to thank the Lord. The Lord receives as a spiritual sacrifice thanksgiving that arises from the heart through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A word of thanks was at least on this man's lips if it didn't arise from his heart. More specifically, it is not necessarily wrong to thank God that he has made us to differ from others. I want to be careful when I say this. We are what we are by the grace of God if we are Christians. What do we have that we have not received from God? And the most wonderful gift of all, that of salvation through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Nor is it necessarily an expression of self-righteousness to thank God that we've been spared from committing sins that characterize those around us that don't know the Lord, especially if such sins characterized us before God saved us. Lord, I thank you that you saved me from doing these things that I once did. Now they're hateful to me. Those things that are detestable to you because of the work of the gra- your grace in my heart, they're detestable to me now too. Thank you for sparing me from these things and forgive me when my heart goes back in that direction. We should bless God as the humble apostle Paul did for his distinguishing and enabling grace even as he compared himself with other apostles. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see, even, even the extra labors that Paul was able to do, he attributes his ability to do it to the grace of God. What makes prayer acceptable to God is not so much what we say, though words are important, but the spirit behind our words and the attitude with which we come before the Lord. Do we come in our own name? Do we come touting our own supposed merits? Do we come to receive praise from God and others? Or do we come to give praise to God? Do we come thankful for our own achievements or for his enablement? Is our focus upon God and his mercy or is it upon ourselves and our doing? God not only hears what comes from our mouths, remember, that he also hears what comes from our hearts. You see, our mouths may filter out things we know that may be offensive to God or to other people, especially the godly. But God can see through all of this politeness and proud self-restraint. He knows us inside and out, and he can smell the least hint of Hypocritical humility. We may not smell it, but he does. I repeat an earlier observation that is crucial to rightly evaluating this man's prayer. You see, he came before the Lord with a spirit of utter self-sufficiency. He didn't need anything from God. In fact, he was there to give to God. He asks nothing from God because he sensed no need of anything unless for, perhaps for God to praise his own righteousness. And because he reckoned himself a good man, he sought no pardon or purification from his sins. Ryle says, Never are men's hearts in such a hopeless condition as when they are not sensible of their own sins. You see, he had not because... He asked not, or to use Jesus' language in another place, he had his reward in full. So that's the proud prayer of the Pharisee. Notice, in contrast, the penitential prayer of the publican. Verse 13, But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He wasn't afraid to bear himself before God. And in the ears of anyone, who else, anyone else who might be listening. You see, he was in that temple as if nobody else was there but God himself. He's not trying to keep up appearances in any way. What a contrast Jesus presents between the prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the publican. Notice first, as we did before, the posture, his posture in prayer. Like the Pharisee, he also stands and prays 
but notice significantly that his head is bowed. He's standing with his head, with his chin on his chest. He's overwhelmed by a sense of his guilt before a holy God. He cannot so much as lift his eyes to heaven, knowing what he deserves from the hand of God by way of judgment. He looks down in the direction that he knows his sin should take him. Notice, second, his position in prayer. He stands some distance <clears throat> from the partition that separated himself from the holy place and yet farther from the most holy place where God dwells, behind the curtain and above the mercy seat. We can imagine his terror before God. He knows what his sins deserve. And he comes to the awesome place, to the holy place where God dwells. Sin would have kept him away, but repentance, the grace of God in his heart, draws him out of the city and into the temple. And so he comes before God, not only in terror because of his sins, but with his heart lifted up in hope. He knows that this is the only place that he might find promised help. Assured his trembling heart that his help must come from God and God alone. And notice third, his presentation in prayer. There's nothing showy about the tax gatherer's prayer, and yet how eloquent it is in its brevity and humility and intensity. We behold the pleading of a man convicted of his desperate plight before God because of his sin. And so he beats his breast out of a desperate sense of his guilt, his misery, and his need. We still see this in the Far East. Sorrow beating their breast, sometimes at the loss of a loved one. Notice fourth, his priority in prayer. This man comes before God with but one plea upon his lips. He knows what his sin deserves. He pleads with God for pardon, to pardon his sin, to atone for his guilt. He literally cries out to God to propitiate his sin, to turn away his wrath with a sacrifice so that he might be forgiven. Perhaps he smells a sacrifice being offered by the priests upon the altar. And it becomes a sweet-smelling savor in his own nostrils because he knows that God is not He's not satisfied with our works, but he receives us through sacrifice. And he knew enough of his Bible to know that God would be appeased only by the death of a substitute on his behalf. We know that this God has provided the sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest, for all sinners who seek his pardon for their sin. Hebrews 2 and verse 17 is really a comment on what we read here. Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things. The Son of God had to become the Son of Man, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, notice, to make propitiation. 
There's the only other word, use of that word here in the New Testament. He seeks pardon. God be merciful to me. That same word merciful here is translated propitiation, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to turn away your wrath by turning your wrath upon a substitute. And Jesus offered himself as our holy, sinless, undefiled self-sacrifice to atone for our sin. The penitent publican sought God's pardon out of a sense of holy desperation mixed with faith. And so we confess our own need. We, we sang these words earlier. God be merciful to me. On thy grace I rest my plea. Plenteous in compassion thou. Blot out my transgressions now. Wash me, make me pure within. Cleanse, oh cleanse me from my sin. My transgressions I confess. Grief and guilt my soul oppress. I have sinned against thy grace and provoked thee to thy face. I confess thy judgment just. Speechless I thy mercy trust. Jesus promises that all who sincerely seek God's mercy and plead for his pardon, they will find it. Jesus promises that he will never cast such out. He will save them from their sin. Therefore, notice finally by way of exposition, the parable's conclusion individualized the two opposite results to the two different prayers. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus is giving the punchline as it were. He's bringing home the lesson of his parable. I tell you, this man, this penitent publican, this one who pleads to God for pardon, this man went down to his house justified. God heard and he answered, God be merciful to me, the sinner, rather than the other, rather than the proud preening Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Notice first, as we consider the conclusion individualized, the startling outcome. The pleader pardoned, the preener ignored. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see, the Pharisees would have reversed Jesus' verdict. They would have approved the preener and rejected the pleader. But Jesus assures them that they judge wrongly. God's standard of judgment, you see, is different from man's. God receives the penitent and he rejects the proud. It is the poor in spirit, Jesus said, those who mourn over their sin that receive pardon from God. They and they alone. You see, Jesus came not to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. All self-satisfied persons, he sends away. They have no part in his salvation. Luke 1 and verse 53. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Paul puts in theological terms, Romans 4 and verse 5, but to the one who does not work, who doesn't stand upon his supposed goodness, the things that he does to merit the favor of God, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. It's not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demand. Tragically, the one who congratulated himself went home condemned, yet in his sin, but the man who confessed his sin and pleaded for God's mercy went home right with God, pardoned of his sin. Notice, secondly, the fixed principle, the fixed divine principle, and that is the proud degraded and the humble elevated. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. How different is God's standard than man's? The world glories in pride. It glorifies the proud. It despises the humble. Pride and self-promotion may get men elevated in the world, while it is humility and brokenness that gain the notice of and receive the blessing from God. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly like this penitent publican. But the haughty like this proud preening Pharisee, he knows from afar. The penitent publican departed the temple with a sweet sense of pardon filling his heart. But the other man left only full of himself since he had not sought forgiveness from God. So what does that say to us by way of concluding observations? I have just a couple and we'll be done. Notice first, self-righteousness keeps us from Christ because it insulates us from our sin. It insulates us from our sin. Like an onion, how many layers of self-righteousness do we have that hide the core? Self-righteousness may bring us to church, but it will never bring us to Christ. Pride blinds us to our sin and our need for God's pardon, and it makes us compare ourselves favorably with other people it makes us congratulate rather than condemn ourselves. Pride only confirms us in our sin. It prevents us from seeking God's pardon in Christ. Indeed, why should we seek his pardon when we so highly regard ourselves? We don't need pardon from God. We just need him to pat us on the back. Self-righteousness is a spiritual terminal illness that affects us all until God saves us 
And then we may struggle with it, and we will, even after he saves us. And that's why we have to continually go to the fountain which is open for sin and uncleanness and confess our pride and ask God to humble us in his sight. Ryle says, From the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to do. We secretly flatter ourselves that we are not so bad as some and that we have something to recommend us to the favor of God. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, Proverbs 20 and verse 6. We forget the plain testimony of Scripture. In many things we offend all. There is not a just man upon earth that does good and sins not. What is man that he should be clean, or he that is born of woman that he should be righteous? Ra goes on to say, the true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. See, when we're proud, we don't, we don't know ourselves as we should. Ralph says, once let the eyes of our understanding be opened by the Spirit, and we shall talk no more of our own goodness. Once let us see what there is in our own hearts and what the holy law of God requires, and self-conceit will die. We shall lay our hand on our mouths and cry with the leper, unclean, unclean. And so I ask myself, I ask you, have you openly, honestly examined your sins in the light of the glory and, and gospel of God? Do you think, well, I don't need the gospel because I'm a basically a, a good person. Have you sought forgiveness for your sins? Have you gone to Jesus Christ? Say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And notice, secondly, and finally, God answers the prayer of the repentant for pardon of their sins. God heard the prayer of the penitent publican. He pardoned him from his sin. He went home right with God. He went home forgiven. He went home robed with the righteousness of Christ. He went home happy, truly holy, knowing that he was fully and finally forgiven, pardoned by God, who receives sinners who come to him pleading for, their, for, for mercy from him. Will you not go to him this morning? Hymn writer. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? I close with, the, with some words from Richard Sibbs. He writes, None are fitter for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. Men, for the most part, are not lost enough in their own feeling for a Savior. A holy despair in ourselves is the ground of true hope. We have to despair of hope in ourselves and place all of our hope upon God for pardon from our sins and acceptance in Jesus Christ. 
May he so help us to do this day. I say this to those who are without Christ, that you would run to him, plead his God's mercy, seek his pardon, that for you this would be the day of salvation, that you may go home justified and not just go home. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we pray that you would hear us in this hour. There's no, there's nothing more important than the a yes answer to the question, are you pardoned? And so we pray for any here that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that you would work in their hearts, open their eyes to their sins. For Lord, some here may need not only to be pardoned for, from their sin, they need to be pardoned from their righteousness. We pray that they would turn from their righteousness and they would turn to Jesus Christ, who is truly righteous. Indeed, the just for the unjust, he sacrificed himself that he might bring us to God. And for your own people here, Lord, how commonly we we step from the, the side of the publican to stand in the place of the Pharisee. Lord, help us to see ourselves as we ought and we will not view others with contempt. Help us to view ourselves with contempt, that kind of contempt that drives us to our knees and pleads again your mercy through Jesus Christ, and you will hear us and you will answer. We have that promise in him. So Lord, be with everyone in this room. You know the the needs, you read the hearts, and we pray that you would visit with your grace each one here this day with pardon and purification. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.